0: So similar to last week, we're only going to be looking at verse 14 today, just looking at one phrase, not so much unpacking it, we'll do that, just explaining it, so that won't be too long, but helping us apply it. And that's the second phrase there, encourage, I'm sorry, yeah, encourage the faint-hearted. In preparing for the message, I remembered something, and I talked to Richard about it to kind of get some of those details right that's something that happened about 15 years ago. I was in the young adult group. I'm like 22, 23. Richard's our teacher. And he noticed some strange, irritating rash developing on his skin. And like I think most of us would do, you just assume it'll go away. But it didn't. And instead of getting better, it started to get worse. I think it was spreading. And so Richard was compelled to make an appointment with a doctor. He went in, he was met by a young man. He said he came in, he's got a mask on, he's got goggles on. And I'm sure there are medical terms that were used, but the basic response was, I don't know what you have. Here's some medication, I hope it helps. So Richard took the meds for three or four days and nothing changed. Nothing got better. And so news goes out to the young adult group. We're praying for him, we're confused, we're concerned. He has an unknown cause to a skin condition, and someone at the time even compared you to Job. I remember that. He decided to go back to the doctor, and the second time, he met a different man. He said, an older guy, probably near retirement age, no mask, no goggles, and I remember you commenting to me that you, you told him about that he looked very different than the first guy, and he said, I oh, don't worry. I'm not touching anything I shouldn't be touching, but he looked at Richard and very confidently said, son, You got poison oak. And you got the correct medication, and it went away pretty soon. The moral of the story is, stay on the fairway. No, uh, the moral of the story is, if you're going to address a problem, you need to be able to identify it. You have to know what's causing a problem in order to move toward a solution. You need a proper diagnosis. And that makes sense in the medical realm. It should make sense to us in the spiritual realm as well as we've been reading, we're called to help others in the church, and that means we need to be able to identify what the problem is to the best of our ability. We need to make a proper diagnosis. We, we can understand that problem intellectually, but then when we hear about a problem or if we talk to someone, it's very easy to jump to conclusions. As a parent, I can solve this, whatever's happening between my kids, I'll fix it instead of patiently gathering more information. And a helpful reminder when dealing with this topic comes to us in Proverbs 18:13. This is something you should know, you should teach it to your own kids. Proverbs 18:13 says, "If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame." If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. The point is you need to do some investigation. You need to diagnose the problem correctly. Otherwise, you are a shameful fool. And that's a good reminder for us as we come to now our second study in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. We saw last week that the verse mentions three groups of people that you and I are going to encounter in the church. These are not fixed labels on people. These are three different possibilities that any of us can face at any time. There will be other people in this category at various times, and we will ourselves fall into one of these categories. And if you notice, according to verse 14, each group gets a different response. One more time, verse 14 says, but we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or the unruly, the undisciplined. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then I think as an umbrella Uh, exhortation there, be patient with them all. Those are examples of people who are not thriving spiritually. So what do you do with them? Well, first, like we said, you need to diagnose the problem. You have to understand the kind of person you're dealing with, and then you'll be able to have the appropriate response. Last week, we talked about the first group. We talked about what it means to be idle or negligent, undisciplined. We talked about what it means to admonish them, to correct them. Today, we're going to be looking at the second category. I was originally going to do both, but I've decided just to do one, and we'll cover the third group next week. The second group there, second exhortation there is encourage the faint-hearted. So what does it mean to be faint-hearted, and how do we encourage them? We'll just answer those questions one at a time. Who are the faint-hearted? Hearted. The Greek word is a compound word, oligapsukos, which is the only time it's used in the New Testament. But if you break it into its two components, it might be familiar to you. The first word is oligos, which is connected to oligarchy, if you know that term. That is where a small group of people hold all the authority in a government. That's an oligarchy, because oligos means small, little, few. The second half is the Greek word Psuke, like a P.S. Suke. And that's where we get the English word psyche. In the, in the Greek, it's normally translated soul, but it could also be translated life or heart. So if someone is oligapsukas, it means they have a small heart or a little spirit in a figurative sense. And other English translations will help. They use the words discouraged or disheartened. Discourage is a lack of courage, disheartened, a a small heart. The first group, which we talked about last week, was characterized by deliberate rebellion or laziness. They do not want to do what they're responsible to do. This second group is a little different. They're going to be more characterized by fear, sadness, and apprehension. This is someone who's worried. This is someone who's anxious. This is someone who feels overwhelmed by something and it's affecting their spiritual life. We're all gonna face that to varying degrees, but there will be seasons where it it keeps us from thriving in the Lord. Last week I used the analogy of of, of taking a, a group of small children on a hike. We're gonna go up and we're gonna go up this mountain and we're gonna see a beautiful waterfall at the end. And the first category is a group of kids who aren't marching with the rest of the group because they're throwing rocks at squirrels, they're throwing rocks at birds, they're playing hide and seek behind the trees and they don't wanna stay with the group. The second category is a little different. They're not with the group, but the motivation is different. This is not deliberate rebellion, this is fear. You can imagine a kid saying, the forest looks dark and scary, I don't wanna go. Maybe a kid is scared that he might be attacked by, by an animal. Or maybe something happened that morning or something's going on in his home and he's distracted. It's affecting his morale. There's nothing physically wrong with the kid. He may even want to be with the group, but he's discouraged, he's anxious, he's afraid. That's what it means to be faint-hearted. And what do people in that category need? They don't need to be scolded. They don't need to be berated into submission. Paul says they need to be encouraged. Encourage the faint-hearted In English, encourage literally means in courage. You're you're putting courage into someone. That's the idea. You're using your words to calm their fears and to give them the confidence to continue in what they've been called to do. That encouragement may have an element of correction, but it's also going to include an element of consoling or comforting. This encouragement is trying to give them a proper perspective so they can overcome their concern and get back to their responsibilities. The tricky part is identifying it. Because here's what you have to understand. There are people who may be held back because of some fear, but they don't actually immediately know what the fear is and they're not expressing it directly. On the other hand, you can have someone who says they're afraid But their stated fear is really covering up another problem. So are they really faint-hearted or not? Proverbs 20 says, the heart of a man is like water in a deep well. And it says there, a man of understanding will draw it out. It takes wisdom to understand someone's heart. For example, Proverbs mentions a man who doesn't want to go out and presumably do his chores in in the field because he says, there's a lion in the streets. He's going to eat me. And Proverbs says, that man is not afraid, that man is a sluggard. His excuse, his fear, is an excuse for his laziness. His fear is a disguise for his rebellion. So we need to be be careful about labeling someone too quickly. But if you realize that someone is being held back because of some fear, some concern, we need to act. And we don't want to assume that that condition is less dangerous than open rebellion. It's a different kind of danger, but it is a danger nonetheless. Jesus shared a story of four different kinds of soil. I think you know the parable. Different kinds of soil, all of them received the seeds, but only one kind of soil produced a harvest, a crop. And that soil, that fruitful soil, represented the faithful heart that received the gospel, received the truth. The other three did not. One of the soils that had no harvest was a soil that had thorns growing up with the crop and they choked out the plant. And Jesus said that is the picture of someone's faith being choked out, he said, possibly by the worries of the world. So worry can be a real problem and we need to be ready to address it lovingly in someone else's life. So how do you encourage someone who's faint-hearted? How do you encourage someone who doesn't seem to have the desire to continue? Well, first of all, you should talk to them. You should ask them questions to try to understand what it is that they're afraid of. What is it that they're holding on to that maybe God has not called them to hold on to? That's that's very common in fear. We take on responsibilities or expectations that aren't from God. They're from the culture or the rest of the world. And so there's some fear. And once you identify the fear or a little closer to identifying it, then you're in a place to give more specific encouragement Some of you are going to be much more effective than than the rest of us at encouraging others. That's part of the reason I think it's named as one of the spiritual gifts. You do it better. You're, You're using it to help orient people, put them back on the right path. And God should use you to help us get better at that. Encouraging someone effectively is like the boxing coach who needs to convince his fighter to get back in the ring for the last round. It's like the coach who needs his team to finish strong when there's only a couple minutes left. If you do it wrong, you might have the opposite effect. I remember in in college, it was a sports psychology class and they were discussing with the difference of how you address people. And there was a soccer team and it was a girls team and she kicked the ball and it went one way and the coach said, come on, my grandma can kick harder than that. And among men, that might be a good motivation. This girl broke down crying and said, my grandma just died. It's very different, right? Who you're talking to affects how you're going to try and encourage them. Paul compared his ministry not to a coach or a trainer, but he used the analogy aptly for today of a father. Go, go back just a couple pages maybe to First Thessalonians chapter two, verse eleven and twelve. First Thessalonians two eleven. Paul says to them, he says, for you know how, like a father with his own children, we, and that is him and Timothy and Barnabas there, not Barnabas, uh, 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 Silas, Silvanus. He says, we, you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He encouraged them, he says. He he charged them. He didn't want them to forget what was at stake. He already said in chapter one, persecution was coming. They're suffering. Some of them may have even lost their lives for the faith. But they needed to walk worthy of their God who had called them into their kingdom. And so Paul was telling them, don't abandon the commitment you've made. The book of Hebrews has a similar message. It's much more direct because persecution was leading some of the Jewish population, to abandon Christ. I'll go back to just being a a normal Jew and none of this with Christ and then there won't be any persecution. And the author there says, no, you need to stay the course. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him who offers you something that nothing in this world or nothing in the old covenant could honor you. Those are examples of biblical exhortation, biblical encouragement. The most important thing to remember, and I said this last week for admonition, is that the best help we can give to anybody is going to come from the Word of God. We want biblical encouragement. And so that's what I want to spend the rest of our time doing today. I'm going to take the liberty to do that. Uh, I just think it's an important topic. On the one side, it might be important for you personally. You might I'm glad you're here. It might have been a chore to be here. But if you're finding something in life that's difficult or or challenging, if you feel disheartened in some way, you need to just rest and let God minister to you. You don't even have to turn your Bible. I'm going to be jumping around a bunch of passages. You can simply listen, jot some notes down if you like. I think practically we understand that there are people who probably deal with discouragement more often than others part of our own makeup, everyone has strengths and weaknesses. If you think to yourself, well, I'm not really the discouraged type, you still need to listen because we can all gain wisdom in how to encourage others. A good chunk of Jesus' ministry was helping prepare his followers for their fears and for what was to come. And the most fundamental fear, I suppose, is the fear for your own life, and the fear for the basic necessities of life. So this is most of you know this. Matthew chapter six, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he said very famously, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Most of the people there were, were poor. They they lived day to day. He says, Don't worry. Don't be anxious. In another occasion, he said, don't worry about those who can take your life. Instead, he wants their focus on God. That happens today. We we can worry about our kids. We can worry about our job, our home. But Jesus says, don't worry. He, He doesn't say it in just an emotional way. He actually says it as a command. It's a sin. Don't worry. Don't do that. Why not? Don't you need clothes? Don't you need food and drink? Yes, you need them. But Jesus says, there's more to life than that. And then as an analogy, he just pointed the people to the birds. Look at the birds. They don't seem bothered at all. If God feeds the birds, don't you think he'll take care of you too? Don't you matter more to God than a bird? The answer is yes. Because we, we take Genesis as the word of God. And then Jesus said to the people there, and which of you by being anxious, which of you by worrying can add a single hour to a span of life? In other words, what do you think the worry is going to accomplish? In fact, I think there are studies that have shown that people who worry actually live shorter lives. They stress themselves out. It has the opposite effect. And so Jesus said again to the people, look at the flowers, look how beautiful they are. God clothed them. Don't you think he'll clothe you as well? Aren't you more valuable than than the grass? And then he said, your father knows what you need. Every father, I think, has a moment where you say that to your kids. Don't worry about it. They ask questions, they ask questions. Don't worry about it. That's not your concern. I'll worry about it. And so Jesus said at the end of that section, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, it's its own trouble. So there's some helpful reminders in there to how to help somebody who's worrying. You can remind them it's a sin. You can remind them how pointless and useless it is to worry. You can remind them that their heavenly father is watching over them. And those might seem like obvious truths. Like, yeah, but why say that to them? They know that. But when you're gripped by fear, you forget. You need a reminder because fear is actually blinding you to the truth. Fear is actually the opposite of faith many times. Jesus said that when, when he calms the storm. He says, hey, what happened to your faith? Where's your faith? Ye men of little faith. Not only will fear blind you from certain truths, fear will also cause you to misalign your priorities. You, you rearrange your priorities in an unhelpful way, in a way that dishonors God. One Old Testament example is King David after the battle with his son Absalom. Absalom was killed in battle. And David, it says, wept over his son with a loud voice. But Absalom was the king's enemy. He had opposed David. He had opposed the armies. He had had killed David's men. And so while David is, is in mourning, his general Joab comes to him and says, David, look, your grief is shaming the men. We saved your life, we saved the kingdom, and now you're sending out the message that you would have rather had us die and him live. This is not a good look, David, that's what I told you. You're gonna tear the kingdom apart. You're trying to unite the kingdom and you're doing the opposite. Go, unite the people, and, and David followed the advice. He was reoriented to understand the big picture and he aligned his priorities. Jumping to the New Testament, there's another example, this time with a woman. And many of you know this story. It's a story of Martha, Mary's sister. Luke chapter 10 tells us Jesus arrives at the house and he sits into one of the rooms and he sits down to teach. And Mary goes into the room and sits there to listen. But Martha, on the other hand, feels compelled to take care of the kitchen She, in her heart, wants to make sure everything is ready, everything is good for Jesus, my Lord. She meant well, but it was wearing her out. And that fatigue turned into bitterness. So she walks into the room, maybe even interrupts the lesson. She says, Jesus, don't you care? I'm by myself in the kitchen. She's not helping me. Tell her to help me. And Jesus says, I imagine very calmly, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Everybody loves a good meal. But a good meal, depending on how fast you eat, only lasts so long on the plate. It only lasts so long in your body. And then it's done. But the word of God is eternal. Martha thought her exasperation was legitimate. She thought it was justified. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I know you feel tired. But you've got your priorities mixed up. Hospitality is a good thing. But hearing from Jesus matters more. That's, that's encouragement. That's biblical encouragement. And maybe it's something some of us need to hear today. Again, you're here at church. We're grateful you made it, but you're tired. And we want to weep with those who weep. We want to sympathize with your fatigue, but... We also want to lovingly at least have you consider that the problem could be that you're focusing on the wrong thing. You've taken your eyes off of what matters most. You've you've somehow placed all these expectations on yourself but they didn't come from God. They came from somewhere else. Culture, Pinterest, social media, your mother-in-law, wherever wherever they're coming from, but they're not from God. And as husbands and as wives and as moms and dads, we need to pay attention to this in our own life, but also in the lives of our kids in the lives of our spouses. Maybe you notice that your kid or your spouse is, is falling behind in some responsibilities in the home. That, that will happen, but it might not always be outright rebellion. It could be that they're tired and they're disheartened, and it could be due to some mixed-up priorities. They're placing too much energy mentally or physically into the wrong thing and as a brother or sister in the Lord, help them see that. Help them at least explore that possibility and then give them biblical encouragement. Help them realize that there are things that are within our control and within our required responsibilities and there are things that are outside that. So if a, mom, a young mom goes to a grocery store and her little boy decides to throw a tantrum because he wants a piece of gum, is the tantrum within her control? The answer is no. Her response is within her control, but not the tantrum. But the fear and the shame, that's also called biblically fear of man. Or the desire to make sure dinner's ready at a certain time, that, that's not necessarily from God. Sometimes we have to learn to let certain things go and make sure that God is the one who is shaping what is expected of us, not the culture and not our own preferences. Sometimes inaccurate expectations can also come from inaccurate theology. There are people who, 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 have, who are disheartened and, and discouraged or embarrassed because they think I don't measure up to what I'm supposed to be doing. There are people who come to Christianity and they think, oh, being a Christian means life is supposed to be wonderful and I gotta have it all together. My marriage is gonna be great. My kids are gonna be great. My finances are gonna be great. My health is gonna be great. No more problems. Jesus saved me from all that. And that's not the gospel of Christ. If that's what you think, you are in for a huge disappointment. Christ came to strengthen us for the trials ahead and he came to give us salvation from our sin. But he did not come to promise abundance and prosperity in this life. There are some people who teach that, and they predominantly will lean on Old Testament passages where God does promise prosperity if you're faithful and if you're obedient. But many of those passages are connected to God's covenant to Israel. So it's an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. It's an extension of the Mosaic covenant. The stuff we've been reading in Zechariah, that will happen in the future when the nation of Israel returns but that's not us in the church. Jesus said, In this world, you will have tribulation. So, part of biblical encouragement is helping someone understand the truth. They should know the truth about God. They should know the truth about his power, his sovereignty. They should know the truth about what he expects of them. They should know the truth about his blessings. They should know that sometimes they're, they're burdened maybe even by guilt and they just need the reminder you've been freed. The songs we're singing, you're free from sin in Christ. God receives you as his child. You have total confidence to go before him because Christ has died and has risen again and your salvation is based on what he did, not on what you do. They need to remember that in the end, Christ wins. The Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians about that. He took their mind, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, to the resurrection. And at the end, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers... Therefore, it's a reflection of what he just said about the resurrection of Christ. Knowing the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And that's what the disheartened person thinks. This is all, what am I doing here? This is pointless. There's no fruit here, but Galatians says, stay with it. Because in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. In other words, we all need the encouragement once in a while to be told, keep doing what you're doing. God will reward you. You have the victory. Right now, the world threatens us. But in the end, Jesus wins. We have to get that right. Victory is, is later. The world rejects us. The Roman Empire killed Christians. But in the end, Christ wins. In the meantime, life hurts. But Christ is with us. His Spirit is with us. 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, You will not be given more than you can handle. And then Paul, dealing with the pain of sin and the pain of this world, was told by Jesus, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So in disheartening times, our our weakness is being put on display not to shame us, but so that we will draw nearer to Christ, so that we will depend on him, and so that we will see his power at work. And so that's why Paul said, I will much more boast in my weakness. In biblical encouragement, we're trying to help someone else see something they're not looking at. We're trying to open their spiritual eyes so they can overcome whatever fear they have. There's a literal picture of this during the ministry of Elisha. So after Elijah, remember his mantle was passed to the next leader of the prophets, a man named Elisha. Elisha was used by God to... to protect Israel. There was an enemy king who made plans, and Elisha would tell the king of Israel, according to the Lord, here are those plans. And the enemy king said, wait a minute, who's telling him all our plans? We have a spy among us. And the soldiers go, no, 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 we, there's no spy. It's Elisha, the Lord tells him. So the king takes his army, takes his chariots, he takes his horses, and he surrounds the city where Elisha is. This is Second Kings chapter 6. And the next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up and he looks out, they're on a mountain, and he sees all around the city, all the enemy soldiers. And he says, oh no, what are we going to do? He was faint hearted. And Elijah, I I just imagine very calmly, confidently said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And was there an army of Israelites hiding in the city? No. Elisha was talking about God's angelic army. And Elisha prayed to God that his servant's eyes would be opened. And God answered the prayer. He, he, the servant saw the hill on which they were was filled with fiery horses and chariots all around. You think that gave him confidence? Yeah. I think Isaiah says, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Can you imagine an army of angels? Jesus had that confidence when he was arrested. He said, I could call down legions of angels. But he knew he was in God's plan. We all need reminders of God's power to fight for his people. And especially so when we're saddened or burdened in life. And we praise God for the people he brings into our life to bring us those reminders in a way that's specific to us and helpful. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he was known for his confidence in the sovereignty of God, his confidence in salvation. He's typically, he's the one who, who hammered the 95 Thesis on the door there in Wittenberg. And so the, the, the perception we tend to get of him is this strong man who's defying the Roman Catholic Church and standing on the truth of scripture and that is who he was, but he was also historically known to go through many times of depression. And there was one occasion where his depression was prolonged and because it wasn't going away under his friend's advice, they told him, go, you should leave town for a while, maybe change, get some fresh air, and then come back and he did that. Remember, his life was being threatened by the Roman Catholic Church. They're looking for him to kill him. He comes back and he's still miserable and he went into his living room one of those days and he realized that his wife, Katerina, and, and possibly the children, the story, depending on the story, it varies, but she was dressed in all black and it caught him off guard and he said, is, it, is there a funeral today? Who died? And Katerina said, no, but since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in your mourning. My husband would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust in. And as Spurgeon tells the story, Luther burst out laughing. He praised his wife's wisdom, and he said, quote, I've been acting as if God were dead, and I will do so no more. Go, take off thy black. (laughs) Praise God for a virtuous wife worth her weight in gold, She knew how to encourage her husband. She she put his eyes back on the power of the living God. We all need to learn how to do that effectively in one another's lives. The Psalms, the prophets repeatedly tell us God is near to the brokenhearted and we should be so as well. I didn't mention any Psalms today, but that's that's a book you wanna go to. It's filled with reminders of God's goodness, God's power, God's power. Psalms are meant to be used in your own life, but also in the lives of others. In Psalm 42 and 43, you have the psalmist saying to himself, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And we should be able to say the same thing to someone else. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. God will use us to to shake someone out of this victim mentality or out of hopeless despair. That's true encouragement. And as we do this, as God brings brothers and sisters into our path who are faint hearted and need encouragement, I just want to give you one last principle to keep in mind. The goal of encouragement is not just to give them personal peace, it's not just so that they can end up being comfortable again. The goal is to restore them as a useful part of the body of Christ. When you're faint hearted, you're not contributing in the way that you could. They've stopped, someone who's faint hearted has stopped marching and battling for Christ. And so God is using us to give them courage so that they're back in the battle. And so, as a member of the body of Christ, God, God's going to use you to minister to others at the right time and in the appropriate way. That's the role you play. That's that's what Ephesians 4 says. Yes, the leaders teach, they equip, but everyone does the work of the ministry and as a result, the body builds itself up in love and in truth. So we give one another, we remind one another of biblical truth and we urge one another to stay on the path. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your heart to us there is a right and appropriate fear there is an appropriate dread of judgment for those who do not know you and your spirit brought us that conviction and your spirit led us to call out for mercy and for grace and now the king of kings and lord of lords is no longer against us he is for us And now we have the confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that that hope will be manifest in the way that we interact with others. We pray that as we deal with the difficulties and the severe pains of this life, the world would see a difference because we know our King watches over us and we know our King will have the final victory. Make us useful instruments in your hands to encourage others, to point them back to Christ and thank you for the people you've used in our own life to point us back to the truth when we're distracted. I pray that all this would be for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.